And I praise God to see all of you this new year. Uh, this is not just a new, new year. It's also a new decade, right? And, and sometimes, you know, we measure, uh, we measure maybe fads or circumstances in our history by, by decades. Like when we say the 80s. You know the kinds of song that were in the 80s, right? Okay, for those who are, <laughs> who are as old as me, <laughs> we know those songs. And I know, I'm sure all of you like the songs back in the 80s. Much better than the songs today, right? Yes. <laughs> 90s, uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> yes as well, yeah. Songs in the 2000s, maybe. <laughs> and of course, when you say 2010s, those were the songs this, just this past year, in the past decade, right? So it's interesting what we're going to see in this coming year, in this coming decade. This is another a period in history to look forward to. And uh, let's continue to ask for God's wisdom and guidance, uh, especially for our church as well. Let us pray. Let's ask God's blessing upon our service and message. Father God, we humble ourselves before you, Lord. You know that this is nothing we can do on our own strength and power, Lord. Not even me in preaching, Lord, you know. I'm incapable in my own strength. Lord, the same way for my brothers and sisters to, to, to draw messages directly from your Holy Spirit, Lord. Not just from me, but the Holy Spirit, Lord. Personal message, Lord. The rhema of your word, oh God. A personal message in our heart. That's something we desire to hear from you, Lord. Uh, through this word, oh God. The logos they're going to share, oh God. Lord, I ask your blessing upon each one, Lord, that you encourage each one through this message. Encourage each one through the fellowship, Lord. The church is beyond just the Sunday service, but it's a family, Lord. It's a, it's a community of believers, Lord. And teach us to do exactly the two greatest commandments, Lord, and to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And let this be our desire, our hearts cry, Lord, this coming year and this coming decade, Lord, to even love you more with our heart mind soul and strength and also to love one another the way you love us lord jesus lord you updated that commandment lord i know initially you said to love one another the way uh, to love the way we love ourselves but you said lord that you give us a new commandment that to love one another the way you love us lord and let this be the heart of our church the core of our ministry lord lord we're not an organization lord we're not we're not even, Lord God, just a community of people. We're more than that. We are the body of Christ, the children of God, family. We are family, Lord, through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ, our Father. Lord God, bless your word. Speak through this word, Lord. Lord, we also ask your blessing upon those who are listening online. And we do continue to pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling today. We continue to pray for Rataleti, Lord, who's still fighting, O oh God, each day, O oh God, against cancer, Lord. Lord, we continue to pray for your grace and mercy to be upon her, to grant her comfort and healing. That is something we continue to ask from you, Lord, because you commanded us to ask, Lord. And Lord, bless every brother and sister here who is struggling in their family situations, finances, or jobs. Lord, show them that you are your glory, your grace, O oh God, in all the circumstances they're going through, Lord. And thank you, Lord. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for being with us, Lord Jesus. May you alone be glorified and no one else, Lord. May you alone be honored and praised. In Jesus' name, in your name, amen. Amen. I promise each of you that, to you that I'm going to preach on Revelation, but I was thinking let's just do that once we get to the new place. You know, uh, I have some ideas on how to present that message. Uh, until then, I want to preach a series on something that addresses uh, several 
uh, questions that we have. I heard uh, this is, uh, there are certain, certain questions that I get from you and many of you, by the way. And, and I put together this series of sermons. And today I want to talk about God's sovereignty and salvation. So sovereignty and salvation. And, and what, how those two things connect? God's sovereignty and salvation, how those two, two uh, realities or, or truths connect? And I believe this is something important for this new year because, and new decade as well. Because we don't know what the new decade holds, right? The new year holds. There's uncertainty, uh, you know, before us. But we know that God being sovereign, He is in control of all things. He is in control of our future. And He, who, he was in control of our, of our past history, but He's also in control of, of the things to come. And, and, and I want to emphasize God's sovereignty because apart from understanding the sovereignty of God, you will not you will be, have a hard time understanding the Bible. You will have a hard time understanding uh, the will of God, God's purposes, and how God is working in your life, how God is working in this world. And, and in, in fact, if you don't understand God's sovereignty, you might, your faith might be standing on the wrong things, believing on the wrong things, trusting in the wrong things, praying for the wrong things. That's why this is very important, the sovereignty of God. And oftentimes, if we don't recognize God's sovereignty, God may be answering your prayers, and, and you don't know it. You're praying for something, and God already answered, and you don't have any knowledge that God has already answered your prayers. He's already working to, you know, in answering your prayers. You know, the word sovereign Lord, I, if I look at the NIV, I'm, gonna, I'm using the ESV this year, so just to let you know. That's the, that's the translation I'm going to use this year. We've used NIV for a while, but I would like to try use a different translation. But on the NIV, uh, it is mentioned 288 times, sovereign Lord. In fact, the word Lord is often translated as sovereign Lord. So when you say Lord Jesus, you can also say sovereign Lord Jesus. Uh, that's another way to, you know, use the word, to say the word Lord. In fact, if you compare it to the word Lord Almighty, it is mentioned 252 times. So you notice the word Sovereign Lord is mentioned 288 times. Well, the Lord Almighty is mentioned less, which is 252 times. Now, just to give you an idea how important is the sovereignty of God in the Bible. Because it's, it's always, it, it, we are being reminded of it over and over again. But this is in, in the NIV. And if you look at different translation, they would just translate Lord without the word sovereignty, sovereign God, sovereign Lord. In fact, in, uh, in Paul's uh, letter to Timothy, his last, uh, his last statements in that letter, this is what Paul said about the Lord Jesus Christ, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is blessed, meaning Jesus is the one who is blessed, but an only sovereign. He says there, he is only sovereign. And we know who he is as King of kings and Lord of lords, right? Amen. We agree to that. That Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And not only that, He is only sovereign. Now, if you're going to ask me, what is sovereign, sovereignty of Christ? What is sovereignty? What does it mean? The, the definition of this word is very simple. It is that God is free and able to do all that He wills. He is free and able to do all that He wills. No one dictates God. Not even you. We don't dictate what God needs to do and wants to do is He is free to choose. 
is free to do whatever he wants to do. That is the sovereignty of God. In fact, uh, we can also say that the sovereignty of God means that he reigns, he rules, he is the ruler. That's, that's exactly what the word Lord means. He is the ruler, he reigns over all creation, whether heaven or earth, he reigns. And in fact, that his will is the final cause of all things, meaning the final word is God's word. The final decision is God. And this, this is comforting for us Christians, you know, because for me, you know, we go through difficult times, but if God's final word tells me that I'm not, it's, my, it's not my time yet, then I can just relax, right? Until God says, Al, it's your time now to be with me in heaven. But if, unless God makes it clear to me that it's not time, I can just rest, right? Because the final word comes from him. Now, you're going to ask me, what, how does the Bible define this? Because this is just definition, right? In fact, in the Bible, this is defined. This is found in Psalm 135.6. And, you know, this is not just this. There's a lot of places in the Bible that sovereignty of God is defined. But this is a good example in Psalm 135.6. It says there, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. I like, I like how the NIV says this. The Lord does whatever pleases Him. That is the definition of God's sovereignty. He just does what he wants to do according to his pleasure, according to his will. It says there, he does it in heaven, on earth. That is talking about heaven or the universe. That's where we, where we are right now. And also it talks about seas and the deeps. So anywhere in the universe, anywhere in heaven and earth, God's will prevails. He does what pleases who? Him. Pleases all? Pleases you? No. Pleases him. What pleases him? Now, think about this. I want you to consider a few things. First of all, you know, as human beings, we think we're sovereign. Because we have the ability to choose whatever we want. We, we have the ability to choose what, um, you know, our ambitions, our dreams, whatever desires you have. You know, you can choose that on your own. You have all the resources in the world, and you can use what, do whatever you want with your resources, with your life. But here's the truth about us humans. There are many things outside our control. In fact, there are many things that we are not sovereign. Once you come work for Amazon, Amazon takes control of your life. Right? What if you go to Amazon and choose to, I'm just going to sit down all day and drink coffee. You're going to be fired. <laughs> You have to do exactly what Amazon wants when you work there. It's true for all your jobs. You're not really sovereign in your job. You might think, I'm the boss here. Someone is boss over you. <laughs> Someone is boss over you, maybe except for Clay. <laughs> no, one, no one is boss <laughs> in his work. <laughs> but the truth is, someone is controlling your life anywhere you go. Most of, the, most of the time, especially in the work situation. And there are many things outside of control. You don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't know what the next hour brings, right? So you go at, go at the door. You don't know what the day brings, the rest of the day brings. So that's outside of your control. You know, you can't do whatever you please when you're on the road driving, right? What if you, when you're driving the road, you just do whatever you want? What's going to happen? You're going to be in an accident. You're going to be in trouble with the law, right? We're not sovereign in reality. We're not at all sovereign. In fact, we don't have absolute sovereignty. 
because there's many things outside our control. Now think of monarchs and kings. You know, you know these kings, they're often called sovereign, right? Sovereign. Uh, they have great power. They have control, authority over a domain, maybe a kingdom or, an, or a country or a nation or a people or land. And, and these kings... They're powerful. Think of the, the ancient empires, the, the, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the, the Persian Empire back then. Think of those kings. Like, for instance, Alexander the Great. He, he had great power over the Greek Empire. Uh, and yet, he had no power over his own health. He, many believe he was poisoned to death. He probably didn't have, have power over the people who poisoned him. So, so you see that they were not, they say, we say they're sovereign, but they're not actually, they're not absolutely sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, I have a passage here, but it, we don't have to read through this because it's a bit long, but I'm just going to tell you that a short story about what happened. So, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was so proud uh, because he was the king of the greatest kingdom that ever existed. And I, I know it's the greatest kingdom, that ever, earthly kingdom that ever existed because God said so. You know, remember the, 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 the statue of Daniel? Uh, there was a statue of a head of gold, breastplate of silver, right? Chest of silver. And there was like uh, bronze, then there was uh, iron, there was clay. And, 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 and scripture tells us that the head of gold signifies quality, highest quality, meaning, meaning this kingdom was of highest quality. Say the greatest kingdom, and he was the king of this kingdom. Yet Nebuchadnezzar had no power over his sanity. In fact, God made him insane for a number of for a quite a time until he repented of his pride because he was so proud. He would say, God, I create hey, I created all things. I'm the king of this kingdom. I am I did all this myself. And God said, I'm going to make you insane until you, until, you, until you repent of that thought. In fact, what happened to him, he behaved like an ox. He started eating grass. His nails grew so long that they were like the claws of a bird. And his hairs just came long. He was crawling on ground in the forest. He stayed in the forest until he repented. So even these monarchs, they don't have absolute sovereignty. Another thing, even a country. We often call a country sovereign. But the reality is, we don't even have control over the weather. We don't have control over natural disaster. So the state does not have absolute sovereignty. Even Satan does not have absolute sovereignty. You know, the Bible tells us that eventually Satan is going to be thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 20.10. Right now, Satan has so much power. He rules over legions and legions of demons or fallen angels. And he rules over the kingdoms of the world. Yet, eventually, God is going to throw him into the lake of fire. That's why Paul, in Revelation, uh, in, in, in our passage uh, we just read earlier in 1 Timothy 6, tells us that Jesus is the only sovereign because there's nothing above him and he rules over everything. And let me sh read to you one of the statements that the Declares Jesus' sovereignty. It's found in John 10, 18 to 17. And I'm going to read, just read from the screen there. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. Meaning Jesus says, I, I take control of my, I control my life. I lay it down in my, according to my own will. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What you notice in this passage is that Jesus is sovereign. He has control. He has authority. He has power over the two greatest things in the world. The greatest blessing, which is life, and the greatest curse, which is death. The best thing in this universe, which is life, and the worst thing in this universe, which is death. And Jesus has control of, over both. That is absolute authority. That is absolute authority. And everything else in the universe, in heaven and earth, just comes in between those things. You know, for us Christians, this truth of God's sovereignty should bring us comfort, confidence, and peace. Because, you know, this coming year and the next decade, there's going to be uncertain things, maybe chaos, or maybe good things as well. But we know that being a child of God, God reigns and rules. And He is in control over every circumstance in your life. And you can trust Him. Because He is good. And in fact, we know that God, the Bible says that He is the solid rock. And there's a song that says, Christ is our solid rock, while everything else is sinking sand. Everything else is just sinking sand. And so if you are a believer and you stand on Christ, you are standing on a solid rock. You are standing on a solid rock. So I'm going to talk about three things about God's sovereignty. It's God's sovereignty over prayer. And, and, and I hope you got your programs, all these things is listed in your program. The, the verses, by the way, and, the, and the, uh, just the overview or the outline. So, so just work with me on this. Uh, you know, this past week, we decided to, go to we had a reunion with uh, Rella's friends, uh, classmates from high school. There were four families, including us, and went to uh, P uh, Pigeon Forge. Pigeon Forge, that's the name of the place in Tennessee. And our plan on the second day was to go skiing and, you know, uh, uh, tubing. And, and the kids wanted to do snowboarding because some of her friends have adult kids already. Unfortunately, we're not sovereign over the weather. <laughs> so the whole time, the, the resorts were closed, the roads were closed, so we couldn't even go drive around and see the place. <laughs> and so we had to contend with looking at mountains covered with fog. <laughs> That's the only thing we did. We'll look at mountains covered with fog. But we did went to one of the hills and see the view. It's nice. The smoke, Smokies, Smoky Mountains. It's not smoke, really. It's just fog. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it was good. It was a good chance to connect with relatives or friends. Uh, we've known them for many, many years already. So since their kids were little, now they're all, they're all in their 20, some 20s already. So yeah. <laughs> I know we're old already. <laughs> so that was, that was an example of our lack of sovereignty over the weather. But there are three things I want to talk about. It's God's sovereignty over your life as a believer. First one also, the God's sovereignty over prayer and God's sovereignty over salvation. I'm going to spend more time in salvation, but let's go over the first two um, on prayer and believer's life. When you, when you um, pray, when you look at Scripture and how, God, how Christ commands us to pray, you notice these things. We are often commanded to ask, to seek, to knock. Uh, there's a passage uh, which is found in uh, God's sovereignty over prayer. Remember Matthew 7, 7, we are told to ask, to seek, and to knock. In, in, in Philippians 4, 6, we are commanded, you remember that passage? 
in, in ESV, it says that we are to make our requests known to God. In fact, in NIV, it says that we are to present our requests to God. To make a petition, to come to his throne of grace. These are the kinds of verses you find in scripture. Now, why is it that God, when we ask from him, our heart, our attitude has to be an attitude of giving a request, presenting a request. You, you find nowhere in the Bible that tells you, God, I want this and exactly this and I want it now. <laughs> we don't usually pray like that because we know that this is not ex what the Bible commands us to do. You're going to say, Lord, I want this kind of car, exactly this car, and right now I want you this, to give me this car. And why is it that we are to simply, Lord, this is what I want, Lord God, Lord, if it's your will, grant this request. You know, the reason why this is why, how we're commanded is because the answer is not according to what we please, what we desire ourselves, but according to the, what, God, what pleases God. So even in our prayer, the sovereignty of God is at work. You are not dictating God and telling him to give you exactly what you want. That's not how prayer works. I hope you understand that. You are not a dictator or a commander telling God, hey God, give me this. You are simply making a plea before a king. And the king can choose not to give it to you as well, right? Or the king can choose to give it to you exactly, that's good. But sometimes he would give also something totally different than, than, than what you request. Because God is sovereign. You're not, you're, we're not here to dictate God. He's not our servant. He's not our Santa Claus, right? We make a request, but we must let God decide the right answer to our prayer. We depend not on whether God is going to answer or pray our prayers the way we want it. What we depend on is God's mercy. What we depend on is His goodness and His grace, His wisdom. Because God is good, God is full of wisdom, and He is a merciful God. His answer will be the best answer. That is, that is what we bank on. The person of God, His character. Not, not, not exactly the kind of gift you're going to get or whether you receive the exact one or not. And the problem is because we, we, we forget God's sovereignty, we often look for, the, the answers we look for is, is, are the things that we ask for. But the answer could be totally different than what you ask for. And that's why when you pray, you need to expand your mind and your observation and you look at things wider because God's answer might be totally, totally, totally different than what you've been asking for. And his strategy and his approach could be totally different. I, I know some people will pray, Lord, I pray that the, car, the, the, the money truck will deliver the truck to the ATM, money to the ATM. And once it's in the ATM, Lord, bless my card so that it will work. And Lord, bless this card so that when I put in the ATM, Lord, there's money that's going to come out there. You know, very detailed. <laughs> but, but the truth is, God, let God answer the way he wants to answer your prayer. And it could be totally different from your expectation, totally different than your timing. Our faith is not that God will give us exactly what we ask for. Our faith is that it's in God himself, in the person of God. His person, His character. This is God's sovereignty over prayer. That's why I am not endorsing this approach of prayer. I know a lot of people, you, even me, I'm guilty of this. You often pray, Lord, I claim healing. Do you think it comes from the Bible, those kinds of prayers? Lord, I claim a new blessing today. I claim a new house. 
There's, it's not biblical, by the way, that kind of prayer. That's why let's start to get away from that kind of prayer because it does not align to God's sovereignty. You're actually forcing God his hand and telling him, hey, God, you have to answer this prayer the way I want it. When you say you claim, you're not claiming an, an exact answer from God. What you, when we say claiming in Scripture, we're actually claiming His promises, His nature. We claim that God, you are good, you are merciful, you are kind. Those are the things we can claim because the Bible says it clearly. And there are promises in Scripture that are very clear. And you can claim those things because it's revealed to you. But if you say, Lord, I want a red Ferrari, did God really tell you that He's going to give you a red Ferrari? Show me. Show me from the Bible. <laughs> show me from the Word. Where did God say that He's going to give you a red Ferrari? I mean, you can pray for a Ferrari, that's okay. <laughs> if it, it's, that's what God wants for you. You can say instead, Lord, if you're willing, Lord, according to your will, and that's the desire of my heart, Lord. Lord, grant me this car, Lord God. <laughs> but I know there are some more urgent prayers. Lord, my friend is very sick, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that you grant healing. Here's the thing. If you're going to say, Lord, I claim healing, it, it's not according to the will of God because the problem is not all sickness is, is against the will of God. There are sickness that God himself who brings into life. Did you know that? Right. Not all sickness are bad, by the way. I mean, not all sickness are from Satan. There are sicknesses that are from God. Like, remember the Apostle Paul? God brought a sickness in the life of Paul. And Paul was praying three times, Lord, heal me, heal me, heal me. And God told him, Paul, I sent that sickness to you. Because my purpose is to make you a humble person. That's why I'm not healing you of that sickness. And there are situations in our life, problems, that are exactly from God. And he sent those problems to change your heart, to change your life. And now when you begin to pray, Lord, remove this problem, you're basically fighting against God himself, who in the first place brought that into your life. So the first prayer, James said, the first prayer when it comes to prayer it's not to ask God to remove the problem right away. The first prayer is, Lord, grant me discernment. Grant me wisdom. What is this, Lord? What is this going on, Lord? Is this your will? Is this against your will? Then, Lord, help me understand. Then you can pray properly. You can pray properly. So that's why what be watchful when you, when you say, I claim this answer. Because you're not, you don't want to be forcing the hand of God to dictate God. But claim his promises. Claim his nature. Okay, there's another sovereignty, which is the sovereignty over the believer's life. Okay, it talks about God's purposes and plan for the believer. In Romans 12, 2, we are told that, that we are not to be conformed to, our, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that by testing, you may discern the will of God, his good and, and acceptable and perfect, perfect will. Now, Many times for us Christians, we have this idea that God, I have a plan for my life. This is my life goal. This is my ambition in life. Then Lord, I want you to sign this. <laughs> I, want you, I want that this will be your will for my life. So we come up with whatever we want to accomplish in this world and we let God sign it. But if you look at scripture, it's a different situation. What this passage tells us is that we are to test, to approve God's perfect will. In fact, in, 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 in Ephesians 5, 10 to 11, we are told that we, are, we need to discern what is to the Lord. We, are need, we need to test. We need to find out 
In the NIV, it says, we need to find out what pleases the Lord. So therefore, the will of God is, the purpose of God is already set by God himself. His purpose and will for your life is already set by him. And your mission in this life is to figure that out. Is to discover that, is to test that, is to approve that. And, and, and it says here to find out. I, I'm so blessed, I'm so amazed with this passage. Uh, talking about the king, but it talks about us believers, children of God, uh, followers of Jesus Christ, because you are sons and daughters of the king. This is how God works. He said, the king's heart is like the stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Meaning as believers, God is already guiding your heart and the desires of your heart, the ambitions of your heart because of the Holy Spirit within you is already being guided by God. And your heart is like the stream of water in God's hand just guides you wherever He wants it to go. Isn't that amazing? That sometimes we try to insist our own way, but why is it that it's so hard to go this way? And somehow it becomes so easy. At least you find this way even though it's hard, but you know that there's peace. And God just simply leads you into this, into this direction. Like for me, I, I fought, fought with God many times, especially being a pastor. You know, you know my background as an engineer, and I didn't, when, when, when God opened the way for me to become a pastor, I didn't accept it the first time. In fact, three times I didn't accept it. I said, Lord, this is not, I, I, I don't want this. I don't, this, this is not your plan for my life. But somehow I cannot fight against him because every time I resist him, bang, I would hit a wall here, I would hit a wall here. I said, why are all these walls? I cannot move forward in any of the things I want to do. And I'm always in this, why do, I, why do I always come back to this path? And somehow it was God who was leading my heart like a stream. You know, I wanted to leave Austin and move to another place to get another job somewhere else. But God didn't open the way. And eventually now I'm here standing before you. <laughs> I wanted to escape many times. <laughs> I was like Jonah. But in reality, God would just keep me right like that. He would just keep holding my heart and take me wherever he wants. And God is sovereign over your life. And these two things, probably sovereignty over prayer and sovereignty over the believer's life. I'm going to spend more time on this in a future message. Especially sovereignty over prayer. We're going to spend more time on that. But I'm going to end in this last point. Sovereignty of God over salvation. Sovereignty of God over salvation. And I want you to listen to this carefully because this answers many of your questions. How come God does not consider our deeds, our good works, our religion? You know, we, we think of a lot of things. Uh, how God, maybe God accepts me because I'm a good person. That person is bad, so God rejects that person. We have this opinion, ideas about how God works and how God thinks. But you know, as Christians, we have only one basis for what we think and what we believe. We have only one basis. It's the Word of God. And what the Word of God reveals is what we hold on to and what I hold on to. You know, I might end up believing in something else, but if this is not what the Bible teaches, then I have to reject that something else. You agree? You all agree? The Bible says, this is, the Word of God says, this is our foundation, right? This is, where we, this is where we stand on. So that's the reason I wanted to share this, because I want our foundation to be on the Word of God, not on common knowledge, not on what religions dictate. Did you know that Christianity stands alone on this, by the way? Christianity stands alone on this. Every religion is, is a, a work-reward-based kind of mindset, right? Every religion, you do something good, you get rewarded. You do something good, you, become, you go to heaven. That's a common mindset of humanity. You go to work, you get paid. You win in a painting contest, you get a reward. Or you win in some competition, you get a reward. 
That's the mindset we have from this world and from religions. But in the Bible, the Bible is totally different. It counters every religion. It counters normal human thinking. If you've been careful in reading your Bible. So, so what is God's sovereignty? Why is it so important when it comes to salvation? Because our salvation is founded on God's sovereignty. The foundation of salvation and our ability, you know, our, our, um, the gift of salvation. And our, you know, for us being able to go to heaven in a practical way. Uh, is founded on God's sovereignty. And it begins with what is called God's sovereign grace. So, when God saves people, God gives favor. Let's listen to this. He gives favor to whoever he chooses. Meaning, when a person is saved, if you are saved, means God gave you a favor and he has chosen you to receive that favor. By the way, another word for that favor is grace. Okay? I want you to, to remove the word grace as, you know, as some people think that it's something that you do or something that's given to you. I know when we pray, say grace. <laughs> that's not the definition of grace. It's not prayer. It is favor. It, it, it is a, a favor that you do not deserve. If I, if I give Carlo a million dollars and he didn't do anything, he just sat down there and, and one day I just gave him Carlo, hey, you can have this million dollars. That is favor that he does not deserve. I, I don't know if you deserve a million. But let's say, let's say he doesn't deserve a million. That is favor he does not deserve, but I'm, anyway, I'm just going to give it to him. Or Manny Pacquiao can say that, hey, Carlo, bigyan kita ng isang million. So, so that is what we call grace. It's undeserved favor. Regardless of who the person is, regardless of what kind of life the person lives, regardless of his, whether he's a good person or not, God somehow just gives a gift. In fact, we know that the favor is, a, is also a gift. This means that God chooses people and saves people according to his sovereignty, according to his pleasure and will. But here's the concern. If God chooses people and saves people according to his sovereignty, according to his pleasure and will, conversely is also true that God rejects people according to his sovereignty and his will. You know, the way God chose Peter who was a good, goody-goody guy, right? He was a fisherman, didn't probably do any bad thing in his life. But the same way God chose Peter, God also chose Paul, a murderer of Christians. Remember that difference between the two of them? This was a person who was a fisherman, probably lived a good life. Paul was a murderer of Christians, a persecution of Christians. But God chose them the same way, and God made them both, made them both apostles. Think about how God chose Rahab. To be an ancestor of Jesus. She was a prostitute. And God also chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus. The way God chose Rahab, who was a prostitute, to be used as an ancestor of Jesus, to become the ancestor of Jesus, God also chose Mary to be the ancestor of Jesus. In God's eyes, Mary and Rahab, they're no different. In God's eyes, Peter and Paul, no different. Because he chose them according to his Sovereign grace. It's not about whether they're good persons or not. And this is the problem with many people when they think of all these people in the Bible, when they think of them as saints. We think that they were perfect people. They were not. They had lots of issues. Probably more issues than you. And, 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 and this is, we need to remove that thinking. Because this is not what we read in the Bible. 
And Romans 9 describes this situation and, and the concerns. Because if God chooses to give favor to someone and rejects others, what is your normal human reaction? God is unjust. God is unfair. And you're going to say, God, wow, this is unfair. And the truth is, when you're listening to this message, you might say, wow, I, don't, I can't accept your message, Al, because that's unfair. If that's how God works, then I, I, can, I cannot have anything to do with this God. Because he seems to be unfair. Okay, let's see what the Bible says. In Romans 9, Paul talks about Jacob and Esau. Who among you knows Jacob and Esau? These are the twin sons of? Who's the dad? Isaac. <laughs> and they're the grandchildren of? Trivia, Abraham. <laughs> Who is the older among the two? Esau. Younger is Jacob. But both of them, but basically they're twins. They're only probably seconds or minutes apart when they're born. And you can read about them in the, in, the, in the book of Genesis. There's an interesting story about their birth, about Jacob pulling the leg of Esau as he was coming out of the womb. So you can read about that in Genesis. So let's read Romans 9, verse 10 to 13 first. Let's go over that passage that Bernice read earlier, and let's go to it verse by verse. So I hope you'll walk with me because... I want you to see the verses for yourself so that you will understand where I'm coming from. Of 9.10, starting with 9.10, Romans 9.10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of words, works, but because of him who calls. There's just a comment there. It says here, she was told that the older will serve the younger as it is written. Listen to this. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Let me read to you the NIV translation of this exact same verse. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not by the works, but by him who calls, she was told that the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, Esau I hated. The Apostle Paul here is talking about something very important, a principle that you find over and over and over in the Bible. This is, not, this is just one example, but you find this all over the Bible. And what you find here is that before Esau and, 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 and Jacob, before they were even born. Think about this. Before they were even born, before they had a chance to live their lives, before they even had a chance to do what is good or what is bad, God has already chosen Jacob and he already rejected Esau. Can you imagine that? Two babies are born into the world. They're still babies. But one of the babies is already accepted. The other is already rejected. When we think like a human being, yes, it's really unfair. It's really bad in your thinking. But this is what you find how God works. This is how God works from the Bible. I hope you're not surprised. If you read the Bible, you're not surprised by this, right? You will not be surprised by this if you, if you already read the Bible. In fact, verse 13 uses very strong words. It says, Esau I hated, or Jacob I love, Esau I hated. 
In verse 12, we are told something else. He says there, he said, the older will serve the younger. And let me go back to that passage. Okay, here it is. It says, it says there that the purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Meaning, the choosing of Esau and, Eli, uh, and Jacob, the choosing of Jacob, is not because of anything that they have done or accomplished. Not because they're not even born, and God already chose Jacob. But simply because of God's sovereign choice. It says here, but by him who calls. And we know that the chosen people of God, Israel, came out of who? Came out of Jacob. And Edom, Edomites came out of Esau. And by the way, we know who's the, one of the famous Edomites, right? Who see? What's the name? We talked about it last time. Herod, King Herod. King Herod was an Edomite. Okay, verse 14. I want you to hold on to that thought here because this is something very important. You know, just to summarize these first few verses, we know that God choose, chose already Jacob and Esau before they were even born, before they had even had a chance to do what is good or bad. God made the decision already. Verse 14. Paul is saying here, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Meaning when God does these kinds of things, is God unjust, unfair? What does Paul say? By no means. God is not unfair when he makes these kinds of decisions. Remember, Romans, the whole book of Romans talks about salvation in the gospel. That is the topic of that verse, of that passage, the, the theme of that entire book actually. And it says here that salvation means God choosing you. And that does not therefore depend on human desire. If you look at this passage later on, in verse 16, or Moses, this is another important passage I skipped. In verse 15 it says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, you notice this is how God makes his decision. He said, I will just choose whoever I'll have mercy and I will give mercy to the person. I will have compassion on whoever I give compassion. It's my choice. Whether it's unfair for you or not, that's not my criteria. My criteria, God's criteria is I can choose whoever have mercy and have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is what God said to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And verse 16, we are told, so then it depends not on human will or not on human effort or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Meaning salvation does not depend at all on human effort. It does not depend on human exertion. It does not depend on your desire and your decisions. Ultimately, it depends on God's mercy because he chooses to show mercy because he chooses to show compassion to a person. I hope, do you have any argument against this passage? It's very solid. And, and Paul ended up giving us an example. He said, I raised you up, I raised up Pharaoh. Uh, God raised up Pharaoh for this purpose. I have raised you up that I might show you power, my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. If you remember the story of, of Pharaoh, so then he has mercy on whoever he wills. 
and he hardens whoever he hardens, uh, hardens whoever he wills as well. Remember, Peru, remember God, he hardened Peru's, Pharaoh's heart. And it was God's choosing to harden Pharaoh's heart. And Paul continues on. Let me just continue move on until we're done with this. Then here's the argument of uh, this is how people will argue when they hear this message. They will say, saying this, what will you say then? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? What, what Paul is saying here, so why does God blame us? Why does God condemn people? Why does God send people to hell or, or bring eternal punishment? Although he doesn't really send people to hell. It is people choosing to go to hell. If salvation is God's sovereign choice, and he hardens people, and he softens people heart, people's heart according to his will, then who can resist what God chooses to do? That's what Paul is saying. Who can resist? Now, it sounds really, oh Lord, why do you condemn people then? If that is how you work in the lives of people, it's, if that's how you convince people, you choose people and you reject certain people, how, that's unfair. Therefore, what's the, what's the choice of these people that you rejected? Who can resist your will? If that's what you determine, then who can resist this? I know this is getting even harder, but Paul finds the conclusion. This is what Paul said. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Will the, potter, will the pot, pottery command the potter and tell the potter to do whatever he wants? Do we have any right, let me ask this, do we have any right to question God's sovereign will and choice? No, not at all. Not at all. That's why Paul says, a lump of clay has no right to question the potter's decision. If God chooses to make a pot for special purposes, and if he chooses a pot for, for not so special purposes, for common use, then it's up to him. We can, the potter and, and the pot cannot make that choice, cannot force God to do anything. And this is what Paul says here. He has the potter no right or has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump and vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? That's very clear. That's why salvation begins with God's choosing of you. And the reason why you are saved is not because you just accepted Christ. That is only your response later on. When you say you accepted Jesus, that is our response to God's choosing. But the Bible tells us that God chose us not, be, not simply because we, before we were born. If you go to Ephesians, uh, oh, this passage is... Uh, Really one of those verses that supports this very well. And I'm going to read this to you first before we head to Ephesians Ephesians 1. Listen to this very carefully. This talks about salvation. For by grace, meaning by God's sovereign grace, you have been saved. Talking to you Christians. Have been saved through faith. And it says there, it is not of your own doing. In fact, in the NIV, it says it's not of your works, not because of your deeds. It is what? A gift of God. Why did God just simply give salvation as a gift instead of a result of your work? It's because of this. 
not result of works, so that no one can boast. Because that's the biggest problem with us human beings. We are so prideful. And the Bible says God hates the proud, rejects the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Because when you begin to measure your works, someone is going to have more works than you. How do you measure your goodness? How do you measure your goodness? Most of the time, in fact, all of you probably measure your goodness against someone else. That's a problem. We always say, I'm a good person because I'm not in prison. I'm a good person because I didn't speed, I never have a traffic violation. I'm a good person because I gave a million dollars to the poor. But Bill Gates gave a billion dollars to the poor. <laughs> so who's gooder, you or Bill Gates? <laughs> Measuring works doesn't work. Does not work. In fact, did you know that every good deed we do is evil in the eyes of God? Kahit gaano ka mabuti it's still evil in the eyes of God. And the last, one of the things you need to know that God does not just demand good works from us. He demands perfection. And wala none of us can meet that standard. And let me end in this passage. When did God chose you? If you are a believer in Christ, this is where God chose you. He said, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should enjoy and uh, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Verse uh, Ephesians 1 4. God didn't just chose you before you were born, He actually chosen you, has chosen you before the world was even created. Now, let me say this this is one important statement before we end. You can never know who God chooses. chooses. There's no way for us to know this. Because it's all God's sovereign will. But if you are a true follower of Jesus, you know that God has already chosen you. But when you look at people around you who are not believers in Christ, who are not Christians, don't make any judgment and say, oh, God did not choose that person or God chose this person. You cannot judge a person based on his life, based on his personality, based on whatever he, he is. Only God knows that. So your responsibility as believers is simply to share the gospel with everyone. But if you are now a believer of Christ, you know that God has already chosen you. Because you are now a believer in Christ. And it was chosen before the creation of the world. That you should be holy and blameless. And how does he make us holy and blameless? Not because of our good works, but because Jesus already paid for all our sins. It's been paid for on the cross for all us. For, for, for us. The works, the good works that we have is not our own. It is the work of Jesus Christ. We are good not because of our deeds, but because of who Jesus, what Jesus has done on our behalf. So I pray that this is clear. And if you have anything to ask, just talk to me. Don't, don't, don't hesitate to ask me questions because this is really important. This is one of the foundational teachings in Scripture. It's the doctrine of atonement, doctrine of God's sovereignty, and also election a special word god's choosing people beforehand is called the doctrine of election let's pray father god thank you lord for reminding us through your word lord god that that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world lord the only response we can have to you lord god is thank you lord 
Thank you, Lord, that you've opened the door for us. Opened the way for us to come to know you. And thank you for making our heart open and, 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 and soft, Lord God. That we, Lord God, when the gospel was presented to us, when the word of God was presented to us, we accepted the word of God with all our heart, with open hearts, Lord. But Lord, but there are here, Lord God, who's, who still rely on religion. There are still people here who rely on good works for their salvation. And Jesus is not their personal Lord and Savior. So, Lord, I pray that you soften their heart. Help them to see the truth of who Jesus is and what they need to do. That all that God requires of them, Lord, is to surrender their life to Jesus and ask him to be their Lord and to be the Savior of their life. The personal Lord and Savior, not just someone who's distant. Not just someone who's, who's a leader of some religion, but a personal Savior and Lord. Someone who loves them, cares for them. That they will see that he's someone who willingly gave their, his life for their sake to purchase their life and to pay for all their sins. And that's what you did on the cross, Lord. Lord, you accepted us. you chosen us. You forgave us, Lord. And at the same time, Lord, you dealt with our sins, oh God, through your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for all this, Lord. And there's so much for us to be thankful this coming new year, Lord. And Lord, whatever the new year brings, oh God, whatever the new decade brings, we ask for your strength, your guidance, your wisdom, your peace, Lord God. Lord, that, that we know that you are in control, sovereign over our lives, especially for those who are believers. Because, Lord, you said in your word that, that, Lord, that your perfect and pleasing will is something we need to test and we need to, Lord God, discern, Lord. We know the truth, Lord God, that you already have a purpose and plan for our life. Help us to walk according to that will and plan, Lord. Grant us that discernment. Grant us the ability to see what you are doing, Lord, and for us to join you in what you're doing, Lord, to be involved in what you're doing, to take part in what you're doing, Lord. Lord, bless this church, oh God, as we move forward, Lord, our, our, our work of discipleship, our work on, this, on, on life groups, oh God, the life groups, Lord, and even our Sunday service as we move to a new venue, Lord, guide us, lead us, and grant us good success, Lord, in, in moving to this new venue, Lord, whatever preparations we need to do, Lord. Ask your wisdom and guidance. And Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, Lord God, I pray also that you give us a heart that's ready, Lord. Creating us a clean heart, Lord. Renew a right spirit within us. As we come to the table and, 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 and take the elements today, the bread and the, and the juice and the wine, Lord, prepare our hearts. And how do you prepare your hearts? Confess your sins to God. Use this moment to confess your sins to Him. Confess. Be specific about your sins. You may not say it aloud, but, but speak to Him in your heart. Speak to Him with your mind. Because the Bible says that we cannot take this in an unworthy manner. And, and, and if we are taking this with guilt in our heart, then you, must, you might just as well not take this. Take it with a pure, and pure heart, without any guilt or any reservations. Lord, forgive us for our sins. You know what we have done, Lord, this past week or past month, Lord, or even this past year. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, forgive us, Lord. Grant us a heart that's free from any kind of guilt. And we, if we doubt your goodness, if we doubt your, your, your person, who you are, Lord, your, Lord, forgive us also, Lord, for those doubts, Lord. 
And Lord, give us a heart that's steadfast, Lord, unmovable, Lord. That whatever circumstance may come our way, we are steadfast in you, Lord. But we stand on solid ground. Lord, thank you. In your name.